Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. open up a prayer and then we'll get started. How about I scoot to the middle, eh? Is that a little better? Okay. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, uh, thank you, Lord, again for bringing us here. Um, thank you for uh, preserving the words of Galatians for us to study. Uh, we know that your Spirit is here with us and that he has promised to um, open truth to us. And we know that it is the faithfulness of your Son, Yeshua, that makes all of this possible. So, Father, we bless your name because of sending your Son to do uh, the awesome work that he's done for us. Continue to work in and through us as a community, as individuals who are seeking you and to grow in the knowledge and um, uh, uh, mercy of you. We want to uh, be your ambassadors. And so, Father, we, we seek to understand better uh, how we can apply the words of Torah to our lives. Uh, how we can become better husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, uh, drawing all men to you. Thank you, Father, for all that you continue to do for us at this at this Kehilah. Uh, we love you tonight. We say bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Today is... Let's turn off the... Lock it up there. 20... 20... 20th. Okay. Gosh, we're just running out of time. But the good news is this is a double... This is a, a double semester class, so we're really only almost halfway through if you think about it. Because we're only in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to park in Galatians 2 around verses 14, 15, and 16 for probably about this week, next week, and maybe the next week after that. Um, we're, we are just going to make absolute certain that we don't misunderstand what's taking place in this little transaction between Peter and Paul. And in doing so, that will unlock really the rest of the book. Um, but this time I'm going to draw some from, from some... Uh, some Christian resources and see what they have to say about this transaction. Who all, who wasn't here last week besides Chris? Okay, let me just give you last week's. What I handed out, Chris, was, um, and you heard about it, was a, uh, a doctored up version of David Stern's translation. It had some typos in it, so I apologize. Um, I thought this would be a fun version to uh, uh, charter course through. I doctored up the KJV as well, but I didn't print it out for you guys. Um, what we're attempting to do, obviously, is gain the uh, uh, an appreciation for the context of Galatians. And in that regard, I think it is the translator's responsibility, when he comes to a word or phrase or whatever, to give the reader the best understanding of the words and context. And if that means you have to, to add words or delete words... 
uh, well, not necessarily delete words, but typically add words um, in the translation, that's going to happen. That's not to be compared with the verse that says do not add or do not subtract from. That's a contextual command itself. That means don't take away from the commands, don't subtract from the commands. But if that applied to simply the words themselves, then none of our translations would really work ever because they all add words or they all take away words in an effort to make the original language uh, understandable in the receptor language. That makes sense, right? That's a lesson and I don't have to, that's a no-brainer. I've heard some people get kind of bent out of shape. Well, you shouldn't read paraphrases or adding words, taking away words. I'm thinking, well, gosh, you shouldn't read anything in the original text then. So, um, so I simply did what any good translator would do is I went back into the Greek and used the context of, of the book of Galatians and inserted some of my own wording. That being said, we're going to slow down and look at chapter 2. And let's see, take one of those and pass it down. Because this, there's a little transaction, there's a little scuffle, theological scuffle, that takes place in chapter 2 between Peter and Paul. And take one of those and pass it down. And I'll, I'll surely have extras. Um, there's a little theological scuffle that takes place between the two of them. And the, the meat of their argument is really a key to our understanding. Not only Paul's consternation with the Galatians, as far as the uh, uh, legalizers, the Judaizers, the influencers are concerned. But also it's going to give us an inside peek into understanding how this message is going to apply to J Jews as well. Up to this point, I haven't really focused on that. You know how I've been using the phrase works of law and saying that that refers to proselyte conversion? But how does it apply to a Jew? Because he doesn't go through proselyte conversion. He's born a Jew. But when Paul says that we're not justified by works of law, he means both for Jews and Gentiles. So we have to understand that the phrase works of law... Where'd the extras go? You guys did... Oh, you got them. Okay, sorry. I was like, I need one myself. Um, one for your... Yes, for the, for the most part. So if you've got the online, that's fine. I don't need to... And I know you printed yours out online, too. Great. Um, if we can understand the force of what's taking place between the two of them, uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll gain some insight, not into just uh, application for the Gentiles, but certainly application for the Jews. Everyone have one? All right, let me turn to mine here. Chapter 2, it starts out at the very top. I'll just start reading. Um, the first verse that I looked at is verse 3. Uh, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. That's chapter 2, verse 3. What I'm doing, obviously, is picking and choosing which verses I want to comment on. Um, maybe one of these days I'll go back and write in a, a commentary on the entire book. But uh, for now, for our study in Galatians, I don't need to do every verse. because, In fact, the whole of chapter 1 didn't have any theological arguments that I needed to uh, fundamentally get across, except for that one or two verses where Paul's talking about, you've heard of my previous way of life in former Judaism, or former life in Judaism, and the church takes that and looks at that and goes, see, here's proof that he left Judaism for something else, but not realizing that he's, he's really trying to emphasize his switching of the party lines rather than the switching of religions. Okay. All right, so chapter 2, verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he is a Greek. The key to understanding this verse is the force of the Greek word translated as compelled. And there's a pun in there, obviously. Because the Greek word compelled means to force. That's why I wrote it that way. The Greek word is anankadzo. And, um, and it means to necessitate, to compel, to drive to, by force, by threats, etc., and if you look down at your footnote, you'll see that I took my, dic my dictionary definition right out of Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, the TSBD. Anankadzo. That's how you say that Greek word. Um, 
And it suggests that Titus, a Gentile believer, did not even wish to be circumcised at that time, even though it was a clear command of Torah. Keep in mind that um, what might prohibit or drive him to, do, to make a decision. The Torah does command men to be circumcised, whether you're an eight-day baby, eight-day-old baby boy, or whether you're a full-grown adult male. Uh, but because the situation was heated in the first century regarding circumcision of males, Titus does not give in to that freedom, even though he could. But the force, the uh, the the, um, the the uh, the emphasis is on the Greek word compelled compelled and it's borderline being forced by someone from the outside it is a um it's a passive compelled to be someone is doing the compulsion they're trying to force you into a fit where you're not ready to go or where the spirit of god's not leading you so that's what it says when he's he wasn't compelled to be um and why would he not wish to exercise his right as a torah his right to torah as a full-fledged member of the community why not? Why would why didn't you just go go and do kind of like Timothy did in Acts 16 and go, you know, it's a Torah command. I'm going to do it. You know, live with it. Get over it. Because he was um, he was traveling with Paul. Paul's writing this, right? And Paul says, not even Titus who was with me. And Paul's not teaching that people can't circumcise. Rather, he's taking away this freedom. He's, he's, he's putting it on back burner status because the new... The, the community of, of the Judaisms of his day are misusing it, and the newly formed Gentiles are possibly misunderstanding it. So he's going to take this, even though it's a biblical freedom, he's going to take it and take it away from the, from, um, the community for a while. Um, so perhaps he was a green believer, I, I wouldn't ask. There's, we don't know exactly if Titus was a strong believer or a weak believer. That's what I meant by green believer. You know, as a green believer, he might think, gosh, I'm circumcised, now I'm a Jew, or now I'm really in the community. And that would really just... Um, wipe out everything Paul's trying to teach, right? So, um, perhaps he was a seasoned believer with proper motives. Whatever. For whatever reason, he, he didn't get. Remember that being with Shaul, he was surely aware of the prevailing rabbinic halakha. The Gentiles were not considered covenant members until after conversion. So, he's with Paul. So, he surely knows what Paul's teaching. He's no stranger to Paul's uh, uh, the, uh, theology. Thus, his motives for accepting or refusing circ circumcision at that time were a reflection of his taking a stand with Paul to send the right signal to the newly formed Gentile faction within apostolic Judaism. They're trying to send the right message. They've got to be careful with the way they live. Interesting, interesting by, as a side note, that if you think about that actions speak louder than words, what kind of what kind of message do you think Paul was sending to the community when in Acts 21 he shows up and not only um, takes a vow for himself but pays for the vow for other men and goes to the temple and does all that? I mean, that's a powerful signal. Some Bibles have little uh, headings over the chapters and one says like Paul acquiesces. I'm thinking, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> if you knew what, what was at stake there, it wouldn't, that would be the wrong time to acquiesce, Paul. You know, he shows up, and, and, the, and they, the leaders from Jerusalem meet him. I'm paraphrasing Acts 21 because it's pertinent for our study here. He shows up, and, and the leaders from Jerusalem show up, you know, James and John and all those. And they, they're like, Paul, there's this rumor going on that you're telling people to forsake the law of Moses, to not circumcise their children, to abandon the customs. What's to be said, Paul? He's got this platform. All of a sudden, the spotlight's on. That's the wrong time to acquiesce. Plus, if he's going to teach that the law is done away with, that would have been the perfect time to say so. But what does he do? 
actions speak louder than words. He jumps right into the Torah. And he jumps into the sacrificial part of the Torah. He doesn't just like say, let's go have a meal and I'll keep kosher. I mean, he doesn't do something as light as that. He does some heavy-duty sacrificing stuff. And hasn't someone reminded Paul that he's no longer under the law or that sacrifices are done away with in Messiah? You know, hello? Yeah, it's a question or a comment. Oh, it was a, it's a question. <clears throat> No, 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 I'm, I'm making a side note. On Acts 21, there's a story about when Paul comes back from a missionary journey. He comes back into Jerusalem, and there's this, there's this whole rumor going, mill going on. And um, it's then that he has to make a decision by his actions, whether or not he's teaching, whether or not the accusations are true. Paul, there's these rumors. What's to be said? And then James says, you know, James knows Paul. So James says, here's what you should do. Here's four men, and they're under a vow. It's probably a Nazarite vow. You can read Numbers chapter 6 and find out. Because they've got to shave their head, and they have to bring the sacrifice associated with fulfilling their Nazarite vow. And so he says, Paul, take them. And Paul's under a vow, too, because in, what was it, Cantria or Sencria? I, can't, I don't know how it's pronounced. He um, shaves his head in connection with a vow. He takes a vow. By the way, a, a Nazarite vow, was it commanded? Anyone know? No, it's completely voluntary. Wow, isn't that cool? So he, he's under a vow, and he shaves his head. Um, because all the hair that grows out, you have to shave and offer it to the priest as part of the, uh, the fulfilling of the vow. So, and, and we're talking about sacrifices. If you go look at it, you've got uh, uh, you know, to buy a bull. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. Um, if you came in any corpse defilement, you've got to get some ashes from the red heifer. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. A lot of stuff. So you've got to do it all at the temple. So he shows up, and they're like, Paul, um... Here's four men, and their 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 vows ready to be fulfilled. So take them and pay for their uh, 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 finishing of their vows, so they can fulfill it. And then everyone will know that there's no there's no truth to these rumors. So the point is, is he's he's just affirming that the Torah is still in force. Period. And this is all, of course, post resurrection. You know, if Paul's acquiescing, if Paul's wavering, if he's fluctuating, this would have been the wrong time to to fluctuate. I mean, he's got the spotlight. Is my point. So maybe we'll we'll do a side note on Acts twenty one one of these times too. But um, that's my, that's my point there. But no, it's not in this passage here. Let's keep reading here. Um, see additional thoughts involving Peter on two fourteen below. I think it's safe to assume that once the heat was off, circumcision would not present any problem for him personally. That is, to say, Titus. Um, that Shaul had Timothy also considered a Greek by first century Jewish standards circumcised in Acts chapter sixteen as proof. That Shaul himself did not consider this mitzvah unimportant for followers of Yeshua. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter, what is it, 7 verse 9, I think. Let me, I've got to turn there. I should not try and pull it out of my head. Uh, it is 7 verse 19. I was close. Um, and in fact, let's turn there for a split second. Everybody turn with me to 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. You brought the he brought everybody. Ryan brought the book. <laughs> well, he's teasing him about his Bible. It's a you know, I think there's a video on YouTube uh, about big Bibles. I like big Bibles. He's got a honking huge Bible. <laughs> All right, First Corinthians seven nineteen. I don't have time to develop the context of the passage. I just want to single out the one pasuk, the one verse. Uh, the verse 19 says, Being circumcised means nothing, and being uncircumcised means nothing. What does mean something is keeping God's commandments. 
Very odd verse if you just take it at face value. Being circumcised means nothing and being uncircumcised means nothing. Have you ever heard any sermons preached where they just use that first part of the verse? They don't really elaborate. They just go... And, may, and usually it's some type of a polemic against people like us trying to return to a Torah-based lifestyle. Don't you people know that circumcision doesn't mean nothing and uncircumcision means nothing? But they don't read the second half of the verse. What does mean something is keeping God's commandments. Now, isn't circumcision a commandment? Yeah, hello. So this, this is proof alone that the word circumcision is not being taken at face value. That it's a technical term, that it's, 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 it's referring to something else, or it's, it's describing something as a shorthand for something else. Asha. The argument that I have heard is the commandment refers to the first ten commandments. Oh, you're very. <laughs> and, and the rest is the law. And so people have taken the scripture and told me, look, circumcision is referring to the law, which is done away with, and all we have to do is keep the first ten commandments. Well, even then they're shot the whole self in the foot. How come we're keeping the, keeping the seventh day Sabbath? But, okay. And we're not here trying to disprove or prove. We're not here trying to, trying to knock. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a... It's not a it's not a theology war where we're trying to beat each other up. What I am out to do when, in these studies, and I hope you guys are on my side in this sense, where I'm trying to unite the communities in that sense. The church, made up of genuine believers, they really are our community. They're just not – it's just there's so much estrangement because of the, the theological differences. And so I'm not trying to just say, you know, you guys say this, but I'm going to prove you wrong. That's not what I'm out for. I'm actually out for fellowship. And reconciliation between our estranged brothers, but in order to do it, we have to sort through all of this theological walls that have been built that have been built up between the two communities. And so that's what, because typically what happens is when we try to come together as communities, messianics and the church. I mean, as soon as you get there, you'll have clashes. You know, why you guys? What's all this? You know, why can't you guys have a ham sandwich? Can't you just act in brotherly love? And, and then we're saying to them, why do you have to? You know, there's all these, and there's no fellowship. And I'm thinking. What's going on? You had a question or comment? No? Okay. All right. Let's keep going then. Um, oh, about, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, context, context, context. And we know context. If, if we were to establish the context here, we'd know that Paul isn't just saying commandments is the ten. We can't get away with, we'd like to just insert things and make up our own meanings to the words, but the context won't let us do that. So that's all I have to say there. Thus, uh, that Shaul had Timothy also considered a Greek by first century standards circumcised in Acts chapter 16 is proof that Shaul himself did not consider this mitzvah unimportant for followers of Yeshua. What is more, that, uh, uh, that Shaul did not view circumcision as equal to conversion can be deduced by his comments in Galatians chapter 5 coming up later. In sum, this Greek word shows up a total of nine times in the apostolic scriptures, anankadzo. And in the footnote, you'll see all the places that it shows up. Uh, for our immediate interest, it is used twice more in this letter from Paul, uh, another time down at 2.14, which we will get to tonight, I hope. Yeah. And then again, in the, near the end of the letter at 6.12. And once... I'm sorry? Uh, conversion to Judaism. Yeah. Um, for the whole context of Galatians, conversion would be conversion from the legal status of a non-Jew to the legal status of a Jew. That's all we're talking about. Now, I'm not trying to get, say that there isn't a, a theological or spiritual conversion that takes place when a person becomes a believer. That's true, but that's not the sense, uh, or that's not the argument, I should say. They weren't arguing over that per se. Um, they were, 
I don't have any problem with that theological truth, but that's not the force of where their argument is coming. In the first century, they were just arguing whether or not you, were, you had legal status as a Jew. Thus, conversion for them meant the legal change from non-Jew to Jew. Um, anyone else catch that or miss that? Okay. Um, so let's see. It shows up uh, in 2.14 uh, and in 6.12. And once in a second letter to the Corinthians. Interesting by association is how Paul uses this word in Acts 26.11. Speaking of himself, describing his former zeal to compel followers of the way to blaspheme. It's the same Greek word, anankadzo. I tried to compel, you know, I went into the synagogues or wherever the meters, believers were meeting and I tried to compel them to blaspheme Yeshua. And that's that same Greek word. So now we kind of catch, catch the force of that. So whoever is trying to compel Titus to get circumcised, he doesn't give in to it. Unfortunately, his friend Barnabas doesn't fare so well. <laughs> We'll find out later on. Let's look at verse 14. This is the beginning of where we're going to park ourselves for just a few lessons, just so that we are able to eat, sleep, and drink this concept, so that there's no problems whatsoever, so that when we get to some other tough passages where Paul says something like, for, for, through, the law, for through the law I died to the law. We're like, we start, our head starts spinning. We have to, we'll be able to use some of this as our, our anchor to fall back to. Let's read verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all. Now, keep in mind, Paul is, um, let, me, let me pause in the middle of that. Paul is re- retelling a story in Galatians of an event that happened earlier. So it's possible that he may, he may be embellishing on the story. But for whatever reason, he's recounting what he said to Peter, how Peter reacted to that. And then he trails off, which I'm not going to read. He trails off in the rest of the, uh, of the chapter with some like preaching almost. And we don't know, is he preaching to Peter or is he now just telling us, uh, the Galatians, uh, what's going on. But either way, he's giving the Galatians an inside peek into this little um, uh, confrontation that he had with Peter. Now, who is Peter? Peter walked with Yeshua. Peter actually heard, technically, the message of the mystery of the gospel before Paul did. Peter gets in, and I'm sorry, Paul, Paul hears of it, but Paul doesn't develop his theology in it. In, in the uh, narrative of Acts, of the book of Acts, we have a, 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 the narrative is just running along Luke's writing that after this happened, then this, after this happened, then this. And when we get to Acts chapter 9, it's Paul's I'm going to use your term now, Paul's conversion. But then Acts chapter 10 is Peter's eye-opening experience with the sheet dropping down. But then we don't hear about Paul kind of teaching this message until later on. So Peter gets it as well. And in fact, when Peter goes and retells it in Acts 15 to the Jerusalem council, he talks about how that, you know how God revealed to me that all the Gentiles are going to, I'm thinking, you, it's, it's Paul's message. What are you trying to steal Paul's thunder? So here's Peter who's catching this message as well that the Gentiles are full-fledged covenant members. And yet now between uh, this incident and what took place in Acts, we have to ask ourselves, what happened? How is it that Peter backs down and he starts acting double-mindedly? Or how is it that he's playing the hypocrite so that Peter has to, Paul has to come along and rebuke him and, 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 and in public as well? You know, It's not like he was airing dirty laundry or something like that. Um, that's what's going to set up this scenario. Um, So I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles, that word force there is anankadzo again, how is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now this verse is really, really interesting in in the Greek, and we talked about this a few weeks back. Um, Paul makes up two words on the spot. He, he He makes up a word that describes Jewish living, that David Stern translates as Jewishly, 
because there's no other way. If you look up in your um, if you look up in your uh, concordances, this word only shows up here in the whole Bible altogether. Paul makes up a word. He's like, it, it'd be like me saying, um, uh, 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 let's say you you attend the harvest, right? So you live harvestly. You live like a harvester. I'm making up a word that doesn't exist in English. That's what Paul's trying to say. He's like, you you live like a Jew. He's like, you live Jewishly, which didn't exist in his day. At least the word didn't exist. And then he also compares that to live like a Gentile. And, and I suppose the nearest equivalent would be goyishly or Gentile-like or Gentile-y. He, he makes up of two words on the spot in front of Peter. You are a Jew, yet li- you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? All right, this verse is really a, a watershed issue between the church and the synagogue of today. I'm sorry, the church and the Messianic community of today. This whole passage here where Paul's, Paul's rebuking Peter is cast in the light. Is, is, it seems to be empirical proof of the church that Peter was being rebuked by Paul for following back under the law of sorts or keeping Jewish customs or whatever. Comments, acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Let's back up and pick the verse apart exegetically. Acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The phrase suggests that Shaul is contending for defined and exclusive truths because the definite article shows up in the Greek. Um, ho aletheia, the truth. Not merely acting in line with, with truth of the gospel, but rather the truth. It's almost a halakha, is what Paul's trying to allude to. He's trying to say to Peter, the gospel, and what is the gospel? The good news, right? In fact, I have it written down there. Yeah. Ho uagelion. Um, the gospel. The truth of the gospel. And the, uh, the, um, the uh, definite articles in both of them. Paul is trying to... Um, uh, uh, how should we say? He's trying to remind Peter that there is already a, an established way of understanding the truth of the gospel. The gospel and the way it should be understood. Not just a general version of the gospel, but rather we're now, since the context is Jew and Gentile relations, it is really the gospel that the Gentiles are fully-fledged covenant members and the halakhic ruling that they don't have to convert to Judaism to become full-fledged covenant members. That's the truth of the gospel. Mimi. Halakha is like policy. Um, Halakhic is just related to policy. Uh, every, as I mentioned in, in previous classes, every religion has halakha. They just don't call it halakha. Judaism, since this is a Judaic class, we call it halakha. Uh, but church policy is what we're talking about. And it's policy based on scripture. It means that halakha can be good or it can be bad. I mean, if it leads you towards scripture, it's good halakha. If it, if it detracts from scripture or tears down scripture, it's bad halakha. So that's what we mean by halakha. Um, it also refers to the group requirements. Halakha would be like, say, if you want to be in this group, these are the group rules. These are what you have to abide by. And if you disobey these rules, the halakha of the group, then you, you place yourself in a position to be excised from the group. We'll kick you out. we we'll excommunicate you if you don't follow our rules. That, that's what I mean by halakha. So the truth of the gospel of which – and sometimes the, the reason I have to emphasize the Greek article though there is because sometimes the Greek article doesn't show up, yet the translators will usually put it in there. And so, in this case, it's not just, when I saw that they were not acting in line with, with truth related to the gospel, it would be a watered-down translation if the, if the definite article wasn't there. But it tells us that, that, that Paul has a specific part of the gospel and the truth in mind when he's trying to t- 
talk to Peter. So it's a very reasoned argument. We have to get down and pick apart all the little words to make sure that uh, we're not missing the force of what he's saying. So the truth of the gospel of which the subjects of verses 11 through 13 to include Peter are not upholding. You, Peter, and all the others, when I saw that they were not acting, not just Peter, but Peter's the ringleader in this, in this case. Paul's rebuking Peter as the leader of the they, whoever the they is. In, in truth to gospel, a gospel truth central to his effective evangelization among the Gentiles. Compromise has been taking place on a public level, so Shaul makes his rebuke public as well. That's the point. He's not, being, he's not guilty of committing Lashon Hara, which is evil speech, literally, what Lashon Hara means, but it refers to like gossip. You know, if, it'd be like if I you know, started laying into uh, Ryan about something that he and I did at work today. You know, how you're such a shoddy worker and, and you sloppy. You, you were supposed to uh, snap a line and install that first one. And, it, and as a result, you know, you didn't take care and your measurements were all off. And now the, 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 the whole room is, we're not going to have to pie slice it to finish it. Now I'm, I'm using all kinds of inter, you know, technical words. That the rest of you are going, why is he doing this in public? Why is he doing this in class? Well, the offense took place in public and therefore Paul's rebuking him in public. It's a public setting. There's something taking place in the community. It's not just privately. And so Paul wants to get the whole thing taken care of, but he's using Peter as the, as the whipping boy. You are a Jew, a Jew by birth and not a convert. Paul, Peter was a Jew by birth. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Stinging words. You're a Jew by birth. You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. What's Paul saying? In what way is Shaul accusing Peter of living like a Gentile? Let me pause. I can tell you right now the church says that the way that Peter's accusing, Paul's accusing Peter. Can I use you as Peter for this? Is that all right? The way the, way that, um, the church sees Peter accusing Paul of living like a Gentile is that Peter eats non-kosher food. Peter eats pork. That's right. So you live, you're, a, you're a Jew born by birth, but you don't live like a Jew because you eat. Yeah. You're southern fried ham box. and we know that it is. Um, we know that it's a it's a food issue because if we read the larger context, we'll see that. And I've got to read this for you guys later on next week. I've, I've I can't resist. Um, I have a little short commentary on Galatians here written by. Now I'm gonna say his name because I have every utmost respect for the man who wrote this, but it just shows that there is a there is a blindness when it comes to the church as to understanding what's going on there. J. Vernon McGee. You guys have heard of him? He's, he's since passed away. But he, at least he goes verse by verse. But you've got to read this, um, this, this the, what we're talking about, how Galatians 2, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, I've got to read his version of what's taking place here. It is very, very humorous of sorts. So, But let's read mine first, and then we'll get back to his. In what way is Shaul accusing Peter of living like a Gentile? From the inner circle perspective of those who apply Torah to their lives on a daily basis, to, quote, live like a Gentile, end quote, would mean to invite non-Jews into close quarters where table fellowship is likely to take place. Notice it doesn't necessarily say that they are partaking in non-kosher food. The fact that a Jew would even have close relations with a Gentile, close enough to have table fellowship, is to be accused of living like a Gentile. And the proof is in the early first century writings that have survived um, and that were extant during Paul's day that we can look back and realize that this is what, what's taking place. To be sure, verse 11 and 12 show that Peter was in fact eating with Gentile believers prior to the arrival of the, quote, men from James, unquote. Um, so it, isn't, it, it, it does involve food. It involves table fellowship. But it's not just that Peter was, say, 
going over to this table eating pork and then you know it's like one Jew and and five or six Gentiles and they're all hanging out they're yucking it up they're slapping down the pork chops and then when the men from James show up they're like the men in black you know the men from James show up and they're these like think of them like black cats of today they're these ultra pious Jews that everyone knows about and all of a sudden Peter's like <gasps> you know he all of a sudden uh, jumps over here to the table where all the Jews are hanging out and where there's no pork as if to make it look like he's not been eating pork that's not really what's taking place um, but that's the way the church describes it Okay, and, and, and then if that is the way that church describes it, then Paul, Paul's rebuke of Peter would be the same rebuke that the church would have of us when the church has, uh, advertises a church picnic, invites all the Messianics to come along, and we show up, and they have pork, and we don't eat. They would pull a Paul and rebuke us. Why do you guys you know, disfellowship with us, not eat from us? You know, Paul rebuked Peter for doing the same thing, and now you guys aren't going to eat with us. Don't you know that's all done away with the Messiah, and we're free in Messiah, and all that stuff. And so that's where it would go if we took it that, that route. But um, that's not what's going on. From a sectarian point of view, like the one obviously held to by those in opposition to Gentile inclusion, to eat with Gentiles was simply taboo. Now, it doesn't say in the Torah that you can't eat with Gentiles. And in fact, we know there were close enough relations between Jews and Gentiles that the Talmud has to set down rulings. It has to establish a halakha for when you find yourself eating with Gentiles. You can read through the Talmud, and I'll bring those quotes for you guys if you want. But um, there's, enough, there's a lot of places in the Talmud where it says, if you find yourself at a table with Gentiles, and there's a flagrant of wine on the table a flask of wine, a bottle of wine, on the table, and it's usually, in back, back in those days, they would seal them with wax or whatever after they uh, uh, made them. If it's, been un, if it's unopened and the Gentile is there, you may, eat, you may drink from the wine. You may have questions about what they're eating, but you can, drink from, you can drink the wine. It's okay. But if you go and leave the room, and when you come back, the wine seal has been cracked, then you can't drink from the wine. And, and, and so they go through this whole scenario in the Talmud as to, what to do and what to not to do. And of course, this is the, the, the early rabbis, the proto-rabbis, trying to safeguard their students from cross-corruption with the Gentiles. But the very fact that it's in the Talmud tells us that there were interaction. Sometimes we get this idea that the Jews and Gentiles of the first century just like walked on the complete other sides of the streets, but that's not the case. They, they had close relations with one another, close enough that they had to come up with these halakhic rules. So from a sectarian point of view, like the one obviously held to by those in opposition to Gentile inclusion, to eat with Gentiles was simply taboo. It was not acceptable if one wished to toe the Jewish party line accurately. And in fact, Peter, what does he say in Acts chapter 10 when the, when the voice comes down from heaven and says, Arise, kill, eat. He's like, I've never eaten anything unkosher or unclean or un- unclean or un- un- uh, uh, you know, I've not done these things. And then when he goes and, and he, the vision fades, he sees it three times, the vision fades, and he goes with the men, and, and it turns out to be Cornelius and his friends, they're Gentiles. He does all that, and then when he goes back in Acts chapter 17 and, I'm sorry, Acts 11, and relays the story to the fellow brothers who are Jewish, what does he tell them? He's like, you know that it's for, for a Jew... To, I'm sorry, I'm getting Acts 15 and Acts uh, 10. In Acts 15, he says, you know that it's unlawful for a Jew to, to keep company with a Gentile. It's not unlawful. And if you don't look up that Greek word, you won't know that. But your translations will say unlawful. And so, of course, the church will kind of run with that sometimes. See, it's unlawful for Jews and Gentiles to hang out with one another. No, it's not. It's taboo. That's what the Greek word is saying. Aletheia, I think, or something like that. But it's, it's not um, unlawful. It's not anamia. Or, or that it's not a violation of Torah. In fact, if we go back and read the Torah, 
we find God telling the Jewish people to actually live in such a manner as to attract Gentiles, to bring them into the community. But Judaism had turned this whole community thing on its head. They were like, you Gentiles, the cockroaches, shut the doors, close the windows, hide your kids. You know, and so that's why it was such a big deal in the first century, the Jewish-Gentile relation thing. So, that's what's going on. So, uh, let's see. Um, to live like a Gentile most certainly does not mean that Peter ate food that was clearly prescribed, proscribed by the Torah. Recall Peter's confession to God, and there it is, if I just read it. In Acts 10.14, that's where he says, No, God, I've never eaten anything you know, unkosher or unclean. For a Jew to be labeled by another Jew... Keep in mind it's an intra-Jewish thing. Peter's a Jew, Paul's a Jew. So it's Jew, it's Jew versus Jew. You know, you've heard of spy versus spy. It's Jew versus Jew. Um, for a Jew to be labeled by another Jew as living like a Gentile was simply to accuse him of having close relations with Gentiles. It's an intra-Jewish debate between two Jews that kind of knew the language and the lingo, and that's what they're talking about. Paul's not a Christian speaking to Peter the Jew. That's not what's happening. Because Shaul stressed the equality of the Jewish and Gentile covenant membership via Messiah Yeshua, for Peter to waffle in his relations, not his, not his dietary, but in his relations with Gentile believers, simply because they were Gentiles, was to, quote, live as a good Jew should. That's what, that was the party line. Every good Jew stays away from Gentiles. So if you find a Jew with a Gentile, he's a bad Jew, is what the party line was back in their day. Only from the perspective of the prevailing Judaism, think, Judy, Jewish thinking of his day. So a good Jew doesn't hang out with Gentiles. Now, it's, it's kind of like the same. We have, we have and again, uh, I'm not trying to pick on groups, but we have similar thinking in, in uh, family circles, church circles. You know, good girls don't hang out after dark and things like that. Um, that's kind of what's going on. It's not written in the Torah that you should do this, but this was the halakha of their day. In other words, in the mind of Shaul, to live within the boundaries of the halakha of a normative Judaism, who defined herself as exclusively Jewish, was unacceptable for a Messianic Jew, the likes of Peter. That's why Paul's so upset. He's like, you know, I could understand this if you were just like, say, you just came to Messiah the other day and haven't, haven't really sorted this thing out. But hello, Peter, you walked with the Messiah. And aren't you the same Peter that gave Acts chapter 2, you know, uh, sermon and, and all this stuff. And yet you're still waffling on this issue. You know, Peter, Paul's, Paul's like, he, it's, it's like he's pulling rank of sorts. If you can kind of catch the idea. It'd be, it'd be like Mark still struggling with like marijuana or something after all these years as pastor of the harvest, you know, I'd expect the other leaders to take him out back and, you know, anything short of lynching him. What? You're a leader in the harvest and you're still wrestling with this, this common sin issue? Slap, 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 you know, that type of thing. To live like a Jew, and the Greek word is eudaizo, Judaize, to live like a Jew, to Judaize. Now, obviously this applies to Jews. Jews are people who live like Jews. They are the ones who Judaize. You can Judaize a Gentile, force them to live like a Jew, but you can't Judaize a Jew. To live like a Jew, to Judaize, may even suggest that Peter unknowingly supported, and whether he knew it or not, he's still guilty. That's where Paul's, that's Paul's point. Uh, unknowingly supported the halakha that favored circumcising Gentiles before they could enjoy unlimited Jewish community access. How is it that you then force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. Paul is saying this to Peter. 
You know, you're compelling them. That our Greek word anankadzo. You are compelling them. You're you're pushing them to the point of compulsion that their conscience is being wounded if they don't do anything anything else. And maybe Peter's thinking, you know, I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't know that's what I was saying when I was. Yeah, but whether you knew it or not, your actions are you're accountable for what you're doing, and therefore you're guilty whether you knew it or not. So the phrase, how is it that you then force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, seems to reinforce the notion that from Shaul's point of view, whether knowingly or unknowingly, Peter was guilty of undermining the central truth, there's the, the whole Aletheia again, the central truth of the equality of the gospel for both Jews and Gentiles. That's why he says the truth of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles without either one having to be converted by coercion. Because that's what they were doing. They, the, the, they weren't they weren't taking them out back, uh, scuff, roughing them to the ground and forcing circumcision on them. That's not what they were doing. But by the power of the, the acceptance and, and or rejection within a community, they all but did that in their compulsion to make Gentiles uh, cross that party line of becoming Jews to be part of the community. The English word rendered force is our already familiar Greek word anankadzo. Uh, compel, constrain. The Jewish customs in question by Shaul were the specific group requirements that excluded Gentiles from full covenant membership and thus full uh, Torah participation. So, keep this paper because we'll pick this up later because I'm running out of time. I only have like a minute left. Um, We've got to get it down that when Paul says a man is not, we know that a man is not um, justified by works of law. He doesn't just mean that a man, that a Gentile man, is not justified by becoming a Jew. He also means that a Jewish man is not justified by being Jewish. And so that's what works of law refers to: is the covenant membership that was defined by the Judaism of Paul's day that said it was Jewish exclusivity. Remember, I called it um, uh, uh, Jewish. Uh, what did I call it? Um, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, or um, Jewish only, of sorts. Again, the issue is not over Torah observance per se. The issue is, in fact, identity. And what will happen is later on, Paul will push this point so far about identity that at some point in time, his readers might question and go, well, gosh, if it's all about faith and it's all about who we are in Messiah, um, what use is the Torah then? If, if works of law and our identity as Jews and keeping the Torah... Where does that even come in? And so at some point in time, Paul's going to have to actually go, why was the Torah given? Why was it added? And then he goes off on this little tangent about the Torah. So we'll hit that in a bit, but first we have to get through this this part. So, any questions or comments real quick? No? I, I mean, I, I promise you by the end of this, you'll just be like, oh gosh, yeah, Galatians, oh yeah, that's all about the uh, whole conversion thing and you know, Jews and Gentiles not relating to one another as, as Jews and Gentiles. Whereas, I promise you, you will sit in, I promise you, you will sit in non-Messianic circles, Hebraic circles, uh, where they're having Bible studies on, on Galatians, and they will just lash out against the Torah. That is the comment. And, not, and they will completely miss the identity issue, not realizing that that's the real issue, and the Torah becomes a side issue. The real issue is identity. And I'll close with this. The reason why it becomes important for us today is because as we draw to the close of, or the fast coming of Yeshua the Messiah, and we are giving the gospel out to both Jews and Gentiles, that issue is coming up again, especially in the Messianic movements of today. There is still this issue of identity in the Messianic movement today. Still. Across the board, we all agree that we're under Torah. But the Jew and Gentile thing, that is still an issue. 2,000 years later, we haven't figured that thing out yet. I don't get it. Last question.
Several. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have sat down with a few, and it's very difficult to see outside the box of, no, 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 this is the law's done away with, and we're just free in Christ. It's a very simple issue. It's a, it's a law issue. Some, it, it's almost, unless you do so, your stu- the study on your own and seek to read the book in the context, Galatians in context, and go, you know, Paul, we, we corroborate what Paul says about himself later on, versus what the later rabbinic writings have survived and told us about the Judaisms of that day. Plus, just ask anybody who is, is schooled in first century um, Judaism, and they'll tell you that, no, it's not about there. They weren't trying to keep the law to be saved. But it's very difficult for the church to see that, because of, especially because of Luther and the Reformation and things like that. That is just like, no. Nope. I mean, how can Luther be wrong? <laughs> so, you are dismissed in case... Mark pokes his head in there and says, four minutes! So you are dismissed to, to go on break because the next class starts in, I think, at 10 after. So, I mean, I, it's my goal after the end of Galatians that you're actually bored with the information. That it's so, it's so, it's so, it's so, it is so um, um, common to you that, that I mean, I'm going to tell you something and you're like, come on, Ariel, move on, move on. And that's good because that'll prime me for my Hebrews class that I'll teach next, next semester. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> you're dismissed. What's up? Right. That is, you're seeing that. The Christian church looks at that and sees this as God telling Peter or teaching Peter that the food laws are done away with. They make it a deal about food. Yeah, he tells us what it's about. Yeah, they still don't, they still don't see that. Yeah, the church still doesn't see that. Yeah. That he's still... Yeah, it's it it goes to show how strong, um, not only peer pressure, but it perhaps shows that Peter wasn't Peter's Peter's. I, here's what I gather from Peter. I'm filling in a little bit. Peter's doesn't know what he knows because he studies it out. He's kind of more experiential. He knows what he knows just because he experiences it. Paul knows what he knows because he studied it. And so, as far as theology uh, uh, um, training is concerned, Paul's way up here and Peter's down here. Peter's like just a versus. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter, Paul is running theological circles around Peter. So you could say Peter just kind of did what was the right thing to do in the vision, but then after a while he just kind of, because he didn't sort through it theologically, and it even took Paul a while to sort it out, that he just kind of, yeah, he kind of, well, wait, he, he may have even gone to the Jerusalem Council, and I'm of the impression that James and them didn't have that sorted out even in, in Acts 15. That Paul and them had to kind of give that. Yeah, they're like, what should we do about this? I mean, James. Hello, James. You know, yeah, he's the leader of the Jerusalem Council. Gosh, if he doesn't have it down, who are we going to ask? You know, here's Peter submitting himself under James, and so yeah, it was really. I mean, this was, this was, this issue, this Gentile issue within First and Jerusalem. That was the issue. I mean, that was that knocked him out. That was the, that was what caused the complete split. I mean, that's it. It's not. 
over the Torah. And it wasn't even really over Jesus, per se. It was the Jew-Gentile thing. So, yeah, it was just unthinkable that Gentiles could come in and, and, that, and that all Jews weren't in. And come in in their current state. Yeah, plus... Yeah. Plus, even though Peter got it that, that okay, yeah, we can hang out with Gentiles, he, he didn't work through the halakhic, uh the issues between, okay, maybe he was just thinking, okay, God can save them and then they'll come in. There was even a party of Pharisees who thought maybe God would save the Gentiles. That's one thing. But then we still need to convert them so they can be full-fledged covenant members. So that salvation and covenant membership were still kind of... That's why the Pharisees are like, nope, it's, it's necessary to circumcise them. These were believing Pharisees. They were still kind of going, well, they're Gentiles and they, they're saved, but they're not Jews. I mean, Peter's still going, yeah, yeah, no, they're not Jews, yeah, no. Yeah, because the communities were, I mean, it wasn't like today where we can get on email and get on Messianic Colorado Forum and say what the common consensus was. You know, it was like this happened in this community and yet, you know, way over in Rome, they don't know what's going on. They don't, you know, you show up and like, hi, I'm a Gentile, let me in. They're like, <laughs> nothing happening. We don't, do that we don't do that here, yeah. We don't play that around here, so. <laughs> that concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>